Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play um, podcast. I'm really excited to be able to share some more material with you guys. I apologize for the long delay. We had three episodes that we recorded but weren't able to get out as I've had to try and create a workflow around getting this podcast done while also being on the road a lot. I was in, right after I recorded these episodes, I was in Australia and China for um, for four weeks, which was great, and I got home, and then it was time to really focus on the development of the big summer seminars, which we just finished the first of, which is the Hero's Journey, which was our first intermediate advanced event, and went really well. We had some great athletes from all over the country. We spent eight days in nature exploring some of the most incredible terrain and doing things that, uh, you know, I think blew the minds of almost everyone present, where they were able to, to kind of overcome themselves and face down fears in a way that was really powerful and to, to share just amazing moments. So really excited about that event. Had a really great time myself and enjoyed being with these guys. We've got the Return of the Source coming up August 3rd. That's whew, just uh, less than a week and a half away. And um, yeah, that's going to be amazing as well. We've got a really great crowd coming from all over the world. And it's going to be a, another beautiful experience out in nature. So in any event, that's been taking up my time. And I've been trying to figure out what to do with this podcast, but I wanted to get these out, so we're going to 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 just do a couple things. Well, one thing I wanted to mention before I move on is, in order to get these podcasts out, the problem with getting these podcasts out is right now I'm doing them for free, I don't have advertising, and I don't want to have advertising. So what I've decided to do is start a Patreon, where you can support the podcast, but also... You know, we'll be developing lots of other free contact, uh, content as far as articles and tutorials to help support your natural movement practice. So if you could drop us a review on iTunes and go over to Patreon and start uh, pledging even a small amount to help support these podcasts, it'll make it much easier for us to get out and really have these amazing conversations and share them with you guys. So I will link our Patreon in the show notes, and please go ahead and support that. Our first episode is with my friend Mark Walsh. Mark is an embodiment teacher um, with a background in Aikido and yoga who teaches embodiment principles for leadership and embodied yoga and has taught in many places all over the world. Very interesting guy, really interesting conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get us into that interview. So enjoy. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today, my guest is Mark Walsh. Mark Walsh is a leader in the field of embodiment. Um, he invited me on, on his podcast recently, and we've become good friends going back and forth because uh, we share a lot of common interests. A uh, super interesting guy. Um, embodiment's actually a field that I don't know a lot about, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to have Mark on because I feel like it's something that's going to be very interesting to the whole um, audience. I know that you teach uh, embodied workshops for leadership, embodied workshops for um, for yoga. You teach embodied yoga principles. Um, and you're also heavily influenced by martial arts. So if you could just start by telling us what embodiment is and uh, <laughs> and why we in the movement community might be interested in it, that would be a really good place to start. Sure, that'll take us about an hour. So okay, um, <laughs> nice to see you again, man. One of my favorite people to talk yeah. with. So what is embodiment? The idea here is the body uh, can be seen as a piece of meat, as an object, as a thing. This is kind of how generally the medical profession or the modern fitness industry would view the body. That's one way of viewing the body. The body is it. Uh, an embodied, or we could say somatic perspective, is the body uh, is part of us. It's part of our being. It's part of ourself. It's part of who we are. 
uh, it's a substrate for how we think, how we feel, how we live. Uh, the idea here, as my colleague says, is the body is more than a brain taxi. Uh, you, you could also look at it as a, uh, in two other ways. One would be as a kind of intelligence. So embodied intelligence going beyond just kinesthetic intelligence, but in, incorporating emotional intelligence, intuitive intelligence uh, as a way of activating other kinds of intelligence. Uh, another way to look at it would be um, the place, the overall term where all the kind of body mind fields come together. So dance, martial arts, body therapy, body work, theater, yoga, uh, these things all share a lot and they all have something to say about being human, um, as you know. Um, and there kind of needs to be a term which is overall term for those which differentiates them from a purely body approach, this body as object rather than part of self. Um, so that is my first take today and this is the bane of my life on as, in terms of what embodiment is. How does that work? That, yeah, it makes sense. It's sort of like um, there's this popularization of the idea of, of a movement culture, which is a culture uh, or a training practice that tries to unite, um, or a, like a tent basically, that unites things that are oriented towards movement. As I look at movement as, as opposed to fitness, right? Where the, the, the output of the training is about the skills that are acquired and the capacities that you develop, not about, you know, uh, the way the body looks or the way that, uh, the way that, or some arbitrary markers of fitness, right? VO two max or whatever it is. That's, that's how I kind of differentiate the movement world from the fitness world. And so when you, when you describe embodiment, it's like, it's very similar, but the, the emphasis is in how the body and mind are, are connected in one thing. And, getting people to step out of, in some sense, that Cartesian dualism. Yeah, exactly. So um, I kind of two criteria for me, like in a way, you know, you say you don't know about this, you do. Actually, I know your work is <laughs> definitely embodied work, at least, or at least proto-embodied work. And we see across the movement world, I've become fascinated with the movement world because I've seen this move away from this purely objectified kind of fitness, you know, body is machine mentality to something a little more creative, a little more holistic. So I think it's on the tip of the tongue for members of your community and certainly people like yourself or the fighting monkey guys, whoever they're deep in it, you know, I regard as embodied, embodiment practitioners, even if they don't use the word. So the key things for me is A, it's, you know, it's mindfulness based. So it's feeling based. It's not just doing uh, and B, that it's working at the level of self. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, surfing could be an embodied practice or gardening or anything else. However, there tends to be certain traditions like the martial arts, which are, you know, that's explicit in, uh, you know, any traditional Japanese martial art, you know, is a do, is a practice, is a way, way of being a path as well as simply a physical or a movement art. So, um, yeah, I feel like this is on the tip of everyone's tongue kind of more in your world. And I, I think it's really exciting cross fertilization because I've been getting more into the sort of movement culture, the move now, all this kind of stuff and finding it really interesting and loads of great psychological exercises in this. And certainly when I hear about you, you know, you talking about say climbing trees and the kind of challenges of that, I'm like, okay, this guy, yeah, he's doing movement, but he's also working on himself. That's, that's the key thing for me here. Yeah. There's a, there's a saying that, comes out of the, the mountaineering community which has always kind of captured what i'm really trying to do which is it's not what the man does to the mountain it's what the mountain does to the man 
Yeah, certainly the sort of extreme sports and the outward, you know, I worked in Outward Bound myself for a few years. Um, that community has also sort of discovered a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. and they, they don't necessarily have kind of systems for it, uh, for developing it more systematically, more rigorously as some of the sort of Asian arts or the, all the Western psychological arts, because there's a, you know, there's Western traditions of say theatre or dance movement or body psychotherapy, which are really sophisticated in terms of the models and how they understand these things. And But if you're doing anything with the body and intensity and passion, it, you're just going to stumble across this stuff. So I can very easily have a conversation with, say, a climber or a, you know extreme BMXer or something like that and have really good common ground with them. Yeah. So it's interesting because the word embodiment, I feel like, is something that I, I'm using more. Um, and, and hearing more coaches talk about, you know, I'm very interested in the, the idea that, uh, as your friend said, the body is more than just a brain taxi. I've been digging into the neurological research and, you know, there's this recognition all of a sudden that, that the brain is, is, is one part of the nervous system and that the nervous system uh, extends all through the tissues and that a huge compact proportion of our nervous tissue is not in the brain itself. A lot of it's in the gut and the enteric nervous system. And then a lot of it's in the body and the spine, uh, the spine. So there's this idea that we could just kind of like get a, a brain, we could transplant our brain into another person. And, and that that would, that that would just become us in a sense. And it might become a lot of us <laughs> and carry our, our narrative self in it, but we'd be missing a huge component of, of, of what that brain interacted with. And, and, and I think that there's a, that, that, that realization is profound in understanding um, who we are, what we are. And so it's something that, that I'm thinking about a lot. And not only that, there's an, the other layer to that is that you have, so one, the nervous system goes throughout the body, but the other is that the thinking part of the nervous system itself, that part of you that tells the story of who you are, is actually a really small component even of the brain. And that most of the rest of the brain is about controlling the body. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this sort of science fiction fantasy, we can download or upload our brains, uh, you know, ourselves through this, like it was all just information is it's completely false. And I, actually people working in the field of robotics actually study embodiment as well, because to yeah. make realistic robots, they need bodies. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, there's certainly a lot of research out there that's come in, but even in the sort of 10 years I've been running a company, it's really kind of made things easier to present, like when I'm in the business world to present this stuff. I don't want to get into the business of sort of um, neurobunk or kind of the appeal to authority of neuroscience, but this this certainly, you know, some suggestive stuff as well as, you know, research by people like Amy Cuddy or the guy called the Dance Doctor at Hertfordshire University in the UK. You know, these people have really shown what anyone who's been working with the body experientially for a long time has already discovered. Um, And, you know, it can help sometimes to present that kind of research to people. But I'm very much of the experiential ilk. So, you know, I just put it out there, anyone listening, when you're in a good mood, doesn't the world look different? You know, when you're in a place which affects your embodiment, whether it's in a forest or walking into a cathedral or in a you know, busy city like New York or Moscow, doesn't that affect how you are? Um, this is ex- experientially something we can um, 
have a sense of and then you know people studying it more rigorously as well um yeah this in some ways it's kind of common sense and uh it, it can be refined to be more of a useful kind of practice and we all have some sense that our practices practice is kind of a key part here that our practices are affecting us you know if you do 10 years of martial arts or 20 years of dance I don't think anyone's going to say this doesn't affect me as a person that that would be crazy uh, but it can certainly be made much more efficient and much more conscious in terms of how that might might affect you yeah so just to kind of like play back what I hear you saying embodiment is a practice or maybe a series of or a set of practices that um that are movement based in a sense but that are oriented not towards the output of skill so much as they're oriented towards the development of self-cultivation and the connection between the mind and the body and yeah is that a good yeah, way to describe what you guys are doing that's a, nice, that's a nice way of putting it i like how you put it there um, you know, another one would be to say that the body is just involved with more than is commonly thought. So mm -hmm. cognition, perception, emotion, relationships, politics, spirituality, you know, all these different areas are uh, embodied phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. So, so then the, the embodiment world as it currently sort of exists, uh, in our previous conversations, we've talked about the idea that it, it, it primarily comes from sort of three primary lineages. Well, or maybe four. Six, six, I usually count. Yeah. Okay, six. So, can you give us the six kind of primary lineages that are that are that that have given rise to this field? Sure. Um, I mean, maybe prior to that, the question for anyone listening is like, so what? You know, like because I didn't actually answer that second question. <laughs> okay, <first>. cool. <laughs> Yeah. I kind of feel like I want people to be like, I have some skin in the game here to be like, okay, this, this is why this might matter to me before I kind of lay out the territory. Um, and the answer there would be is like, okay, we're all practicing like right now, how you're sitting is affecting you both yeah. in the short term in terms of state, but eventually long term in terms of being, you know, how you're walking down the street. If you're listening to this on your iPhone or whatever, walking down the street, you know, we're embodied in place. So how is the place you are affecting you right now? Uh, the relationship, like we have a, you know, a friendship developing. So that's quite different in my embodiment than if I was being interviewed by, I don't know, my sister or my mom or a random stranger, you know. So, uh, yeah, right. That would be fun. Check me on Channel 4. I'm not sure I'd keep so calm. Uh, so, um, you know, there's, there's cultural tendencies. You know, like I'm from an Irish background, but I grew up in England. I've spent a lot of time in both Russia and Brazil, for example. There's a cultural mix there. And knowing, the first thing is like awareness, right? Like knowing what's going on with all these factors that we just laid out. And then how is that affecting you? It's the first thing. Second thing is like, what are you practicing? How are you developing yourself? Like most people, I guess, who listen to this are doing some movement practice. So to know how that's developing you or not as a person i think is really interesting and then you get a lot more bang for your buck when you get an embodied perspective it's like intel inside you know you can add this to anything you're doing you can still lift weights at the gym you can still climb trees you can still run through the canyons or whatever cool shit is in your videos these days you know and it's like but there's this new perspective of okay what am i working on as a person here how am I developing myself in ways that are going to show up with my kids, not just 
I can physically get down on the floor and squat with my kids, which is great, right? Mm-hmm. But also, like, how is this affecting my level of playfulness or seriousness? Or, you know, how is this affecting my marriage? How is this affecting me in the workplace? Um, beyond just the kind of health narrative, which is super useful, like do stuff for health, but there's way more here. Um, so I just want to kind of tantalizingly dangle that for anyone who's listening and say, this could enrich whatever the hell it is you're doing, add awareness to it, and add, add just, just so many new possibilities. So what I kind of hear there is, if you if you take this embodied perspective, you you can basically gain a, a, an ability to steer the, the the kind of the development of your character personality in ways that are going to positively affect your uh, I want to say affect um, which is probably a, a really scientific way of affect cognition relationships I mean you, you, you got kind of half of it so it's awareness and choice on two time frames so awareness is like what am I doing and right in the moment, but also on the time frame of my life, like who am I? And choice in terms of like state regulation. Yeah. Like we had some problems, didn't we, on the getting the call set up? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we're both getting frustrated, and then we're and then I'm like, okay, relax the belly. You know, with that awareness, like how do I actually want to be on this call right now with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, over the longer time frame, how we develop our, ourselves, which includes affect, but also cognition, relationship, all these other. Uh, other things so what does that look like like just give me a breakdown on like if you if you're taking an embodied perspective into a movement practice how would that be distinct from a a, just a movement practice that doesn't have that perspective i think the first thing is there's a different awareness there in terms of okay i'm aware that i'm working with myself and not just meat Yeah. yeah second thing is different intention so you know it's like this the old story of the three guys building the wall you know this one and there's three guys laying brick and someone comes up to the first one and says what are you doing and he's like well i'm building you know i'm just putting bricks on top of each other and second guy and he says well i'm i'm uh i'm making a wall you know and then there's a difference in his motivation and you know even though it looks the same activity from the outside and the third one he says what are you doing he says oh well I'm, i'm building a cathedral for the glory of god and that's an entirely different perspective, even though all three of them are laying brick. Uh, it's a story I got from a guy called Strozzi, who's a big name in this field. Uh, it's a pretty common story in a number of fields. And you still be lifting the weights or doing the running or fighting or wrestling or whatever you're doing, but it's an entirely different, for the sake of what, entirely different uh, perspective behind that in terms of why you're doing that. And it just leads you to make different choices as well. I think so aside from just the motivation there which for me is just much more it's just much more interesting yeah. you know I mean I, I can like I do some stretches just purely because I'm trying to I don't know align my pelvis or do some physical thing lengthen my hamstrings and that that takes me a certain amount of interest but when I'm doing my stretching with the sense of like okay how am I learning to surrender or how am I learning to push my edge that for me is just way more interesting um, and also, as I said, it guides the decisions you'll be making as to what your practice is. You know, does that support the things you love? So don't waste your fucking time, right? That's the key thing for me here. Um, is it okay to swear on this podcast, by the way? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do it Irish style. Um, like, don't waste your time. So it's, 
you know, what am I really trying to achieve with my practice? I mean, who cares how flexible you are? Yeah. Like, who cares if, you know, you climb trees, right? Who, who gives a fuck, you know? But how does that affect you as a father or as a husband or, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, that is maybe more aligned with your values than, you know, it's fun to climb trees, it's good to have fun, but what else, you know? Um, and I think you already share this perspective. Yeah, yeah, this is right along the lines of the stuff that I'm kind of like, have been working on, very interested in when I, I, I think I've been, trying to frame this for a while this idea of what is the what is the why of practice and I got really interested in play and started bringing in play because I, I thought that the fundamental we had the sort of the fundamental we, we had not identified the fundamental problem of of our physical culture the fundamental problem of physical culture is that nobody's motivated to do it mm. right so everyone's trying to find a, a, a better way to get people to have abs and to burn fat faster. But it really Fast. doesn't matter whether people can do long, slow distance running or HIIT. It's like the biggest thing is that <clears throat> if you ask most people to do either of those for a sustained period of time, they'll fail to do it because they're not motivated. Sure. So then the fundamental problem is how do you get people to have motivation? And, and then my answer to that question was, well, people already have this inherent motivation for movement. It's called play and it's yeah. built into children, but we kill it as a culture. And so I, I brought that in and then, and, and that has been a huge realization, but I, f I felt like what I was doing with my practice wasn't precisely play. Play was a major component of it, but wasn't quite big enough to capture what I was doing. And <clears throat> it didn't quite lead me where I was going, if that makes sense. And, and so I, I ran into, uh, to, to Jordan Peterson's work and I, I started to recognize that that really the thing that we are that we're we're motivated by maybe most is a sense of a personal heroic journey. Mm -hmm. Meaning, yeah, and the, the quest for meaning, and and so I've started telling this story about like you know the I, I tell the story of the dragon slayer Saint George and the dragon at the end of my uh, the first day of my seminars. And it's like I think about it sometimes, and I'm like, this is just weird and hokey, like. <laughs> Like, why am I telling this old fairy tale at the end of the uh, seminar? Patron saint of England and Russia, so yeah. um, I'm up for it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but every time I tell the story and I break down what it means, it's like, like people's eyes start shining, you know, and they're just like beaming back at you. It's like a human being is a, is a, is a thing that needs to be aimed towards something. Mm. And when you give them, when you, give them an opportunity to explore their why and give them a structure towards what a why might be. Um, that's so much more powerful than the what of practice. So, um, so that's been, that's been what I've been discovering. And, and when you talk about this kind of like, I think of, of movement practice as a laboratory for character. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a concentrated way of exposing yourself to problems so that you can learn how you internally respond to them and start to, to shift that a little bit so that the rest of your life is easier to navigate. So you've got a better understanding of the thing that you are and how to steer it through the world. Yeah. I mean, there's always a definition of a practice as I would see it. I mean, we're all unconsciously embodied, so we're all unconsciously practicing, but then a conscious practice um, to create a conscious embodiment is like, okay, this concentrated place 
that doesn't matter where there's no, you know, I always say to my students, I do something called embodied yoga. I always say the great thing about yoga is it doesn't fucking matter. Like who cares if you can stand on one leg, it doesn't matter. And also it's consequence free. You know, if you're doing tree pose and you, you, you slightly fall, you know, you fall over, well, you don't die. You don't lose your job. You don't lose your wife or your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so this place where you can control at least some of the variables, or then, you know, there may be well be an element of risk in there too, but where there's some controlled variables, a concentrated place where you can work on yourself, you know, in Japanese, this is the dojo and you know, there's the martial arts dojo, but there's also the flower arranging dojo. There's all sorts of dojos in Japan in terms of places where you work on yourself. Um, So this concept has been around a while and I feel like outdoor education and extreme sports have kind of reinvented it from a kind of Western point of view. And I would love to see the kind of Western movement culture that's developing get enriched in this way. Um, You know, that's why I've reached out to like Chandler and you and a bunch of other people in this field, because I just saw really good potential for for cross fertilization there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So one thing that comes up for me is uh, right away is uh, Kung Fu, right? Kung Fu, Kung Fu. It doesn't mean martial arts, right? We associate it with kicking and punching, but the, as far as I understand, the fundamental meaning is something like good work. Yeah. The, the, the Kung Fu, you should never have your steak Kung Fu. Well done. So, <laughs> it's a crime against humanity right there. But uh, so yeah, uh, there's other definitions of it and you could really go into the characters and things like that. But I'm, you know, I'm not an oriental scholar, but uh, continuous work would be another kind of way of looking at it. Uh, this idea of working with ourselves. And I, I think the idea of sort of work and play, form and freedom, uh, structural embodied practice versus play is really helpful. Um, so I was just teaching in Moscow and we have a course for facilitators and I want to show them the spread of embodied work. And we have um, an evening session, which is three hours, I think. And for the first part, they're outside barefoot in the snow doing Japanese weapons. And if they make any mistake, they're thrown off the session. You know, I shout at them. It's, you know, it's consent and they understand what they're getting into. Um, We just do sword cuts until it really hurts. And then we keep going some more. And that's the kind of Japanese martial arts training I had. And I want to give these students at least a taste of it because there's a huge amount to be learned through sort of self-regulation and discipline and structure and order. And then we take a 15 minute break after we've done that. And they hate me by this point. Uh, And then we go upstairs into the warm and we do a play session and we do something called original play by a guy called Fred Donaldson, who uh, was an Aikido teacher who played with wolves and autistic children. And we just roll around on the floor like kittens and we're playing and it's silly and it's completely free. And we're just going with the flow and connecting and it's deliberately pointless activity, which I think is fantastic in a world full of, um, goal orientation as well sometimes as well right just to play because as you say we you know we're that's pretty lacking in most western cultures to these sort of north european yeah. and east european cultures um and the contrast between these two activities is huge uh, and the reason i kind of do this on the course is to show people some of the breadth of body training but also to say like hey what do you need right like the problem is that most people are practicing according to their neurosis not according to their development so most people that need discipline are already doing the contact dance and the fire rhythms and all the crazy, you know, running around the woods, you know, whatever. And then the people that are already like a little bit fucking uptight are doing the martial arts and the structure, the Iyengar yoga and the structure stuff. 
uh, you know, I've got an Iyengar yoga teacher student in, in Moscow as well. And uh, I'm always messing with her. I'll take her mat and just make it slightly off center, you know, and she has to practice for like the next day with this mat that's not quite straight and it freaks her out. So there's, there's so many ways to practice. And I, you know, the practice I've given her is to be just a bit more free and feeling in her yoga, but someone else needs the opposite. So that's, that's part of, um, all these disciplines, maybe we can return to that question, these sort of six main fields coming together is um, realizing what they all bring to the party. You know, what the Japanese, and in the same way as, as movement culture is seeing the different movements, you know, Ashtanga yoga ain't enough in terms of movement. There's certain movements it lacks, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same psychologically. So Ashtanga yoga is going to be great in one way psychologically, but not in another. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, why don't we go into the, those six kind of primary fields from which this, this embodiment uh, field develops? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of argue, and as I said, like you could do anything in an embodied way, but historically uh, there was kind of a collision really starting, um, st- you know, there was prototypes in Central Europe, but really in the 60s, places like Ezeland, more your side of the world, uh, there was these um, collisions of these fields. So there was the martial arts, the Asian martial arts, and you know you could spend a whole lifetime just studying that, right? Um, Aikido particularly has been influential because of certain nature, certain elements of Aikido practice particularly led itself to that. Um, and then there's also the bodywork arts. So you know, sort of original embodied arts, some of the old schools like Feldenkrais, which is still a work of genius in my view. Alexander technique, uh, you know, any kind of somatic body work. Um, so any form of massage, which isn't just doing to the body, but it's doing with the body. Yeah. Um, so there's the body work, the second one, uh, third one, we could look at yoga and meditation. Uh, and we could say all embodiment is mindfulness based. So it's mindfulness plus something. Um, so that again is a huge field, right? Uh, and then we have acting and improv. So there's a really rich tradition coming out of Eastern Europe, uh, Western Europe of acting and method acting of not just pretending, but actually becoming the character. Um, several of my colleagues, two of my closest colleagues are you know, fairly developed actors. One works in plays, she's been in various Hollywood movies. And she talks about how disturbing it is to act well, to be a murderer or to be a molester or you know, something outside of our normal range of experience if you're doing it from a fully embodied point of view. Um, so there's a lot in acting and, and improv, you know, improv comedy uh, is huge in terms of what that can teach you. Um, and then we have dance, right? And we could split that into the conscious dance, like the fire rhythms, the movement medicine, um, and then the partner dance. So the tango, the salsa. And again, you're going to learn something different. You know, when I, I was doing Aikido and it was fantastic for many years, full-time Aikido student. And I turned to a tango class and there's women in beautiful shoes and there's this music and this perfume and this flirting. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is out of my realm of expertise as the sort of young macho martial artist, you know, and this polarity and there's, you know, musicality and there's just things that just don't matter in Aikido. Um, and that was fantastic. And my world opens, you know, coming to that with an embodied perspective, which is often not the case. It's often just, you know, done as a, as a, as a physical form. Um, so we have dance, both the conscious dance, the free dance, and then the partner dance, uh, let's see where have we got to. So we've got dance, body work, uh, martial arts, meditation, yoga, uh, improv and theater. Uh, what am I forgetting? Psychology. 
Ah, uh, yeah. So thank you very much. So we've got body, body therapy, which comes from sort of Reich and this tradition yeah. of psychologists who went suddenly, oh, what, what do you mean? There's, there's, you know, it's not just the head on the stick. They suddenly, there was a psychologist and psycho psychiatrist who suddenly realized the body was important. And then combined with them, you've got the dance movement therapists who were dancers who suddenly realized they were doing psychology. And this is really a sort of central European tradition. A lot of uh, people coming out of Germany and fleeing the Nazis. Um, actually, there's some prototype hippies in, uh, in, uh, in Germany as well who fled the Nazis and end up in California. So, um, you know, it's their fault once again. So, um, yeah, they're the main traditions. And, they, and what's really interesting is when you meet a teacher, because no one teacher can master these six disciplines. It's just more than a life's work. And even people who come close, like Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen or Paul Linden or... Uh, Strozzi or Stuart Heller, like some of the people that I think have come close. And this is kind of one of my ambitions in life, which is probably impossible. Uh, it would be to sort of have 10,000 hours plus experience in all of these domains. Yeah. Um, and even then you're scratching the surface because it's like, okay, you, I got 10,000 like, you know, hours of Aikido, but I've only got 1,000 of jujitsu and 1,000 of kickboxing, you know? Um, it's very interesting because they all bias the embodiment practitioner towards a certain way of looking at the world. Um, in terms of their emphasis, you know, you're like uh, an improv. You know, when we, we have people on courses, and some of them are professional comedians and some of them are trauma therapists. And, you know, some of them are martial artists and they're used to seeing life as a fight. And some of them are life coaches and they're used to seeing things in terms of business success. Uh, and they're all coming together because there's this shared ground that the body matters to all of them. Um, but it's fascinating to see their kind of biases and also what they bring and what they bring to the party. I, I ran across uh, something I really liked the other day, which was a, was a, was a quote from a, a Jeet Kune Do teacher, something like, know five martial arts, uh, own three of them, and master one of them. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many marriages you can have in a lifetime if you really want to get to know someone. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I encourage my students to have two major perspectives, because if you just have one, you end up provincial. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit Mormon, you know, Mormon marriage. So you have two major perspectives. Um, one might be real expert. The other one is at least deep enough that you, you've got a sense of another point of view and then be promiscuous with the rest. So that way you dig a kind of couple of deep wells. And if you're a professional in the embodiment field, I think, you know, a couple is a good ask. Yeah. Uh, more than that, it's very hard. And one, as I said, tends to be provincial and limited. Uh, but then, you know, try some other shit out. Like you've never been to a jiu-jitsu class, go to a couple of classes or do an eight week course in tango. You know, like a man should be well danced as well as well read. Like it, it ain't so hard to learn the basics of tango. You can do that in eight weeks. You know, mm -hmm. like if you've never done martial arts, like all my yoga teachers, I'm like, right, do six months of kickboxing. Then you can be one of my instructors. Otherwise you, you've got a weird perspective. Um, it ain't hard, you know, in, in most major cities to, to broaden one's horizon we're i don't know we're incredibly lucky i just think we're sitting at the feast of our lives like this is the 21st century embodiment feast and actually the hard thing is how they integrate and fit together and if i brought anything to this field because i'm not the most deeply embodied person in the world for example not by far but if i brought anything to this field it's how they fit together how they integrate what what they how you can be discerning you know for a particular person in a particular culture in a particular time what they might need um, so can you can you go into kind of how you see that how do you see 
the the ideal kind of fit of these different um the different uh, peach, uh, pieces um or how would obviously that's going to be variable but how would somebody start to guide themselves through the process of identifying the pieces of embodiment that are most yeah. necessary for them great you are such good questions um <laughs> i really appreciate it because i have a podcast too so it's just <laughs> um I mean, we coach people on this and someone might have four hour long coaching session plus reflections. So, you know, there's a process we could go through if someone was serious about it, but let, let's just make this useful for everyone. So what are your strengths is a good place to start, right? You know, ask around, get some unofficial 360 feedback um, and look at strengths. And I, I look at this like it can be helpful to develop your strengths, but also to get to hygiene level with everything else. So maybe your strength is like two of my strengths would be fierceness and playfulness, okay. uh, the kind of joker and warrior archetypes. And it might be really helpful for me to really develop those. So, you know, for example, I've done a lot of martial arts. And I'm looking at uh, stand up comedy as another sort of major practice over the next few years um, to bring those two together to really to the fore. Cause I realize I've got strengths there and I get feedback on that. But then there's also the hygiene stuff. Like I'm a shitty listener. And yin practices of like letting go and not pushing too hard. You know, I can really, I'm going to do a 12 hour day again today, you know, work wise. Mm-hmm. And I, I need to schedule massages, which is what I did today and little yoga breaks and cuddles with my wife. And I need to sort of deliberately have a practice of being a bit more yin. So today I had an hour long massage and I've got two kind of 30 minute yin yoga breaks scheduled in my day. Uh, to develop that letting go, that surrender, that soft side of myself, because otherwise that's going to fuck me. Like that's really going to, you know, I've seen, you know, I could get burnout, I can get too aggressive, I can get too pushy with myself and others. Um, so for me, working to hygiene level is also important as well as working with one's strengths. So that's the sort of logical way of doing it. Yeah. Another way to do it is just to fall in love. And I, and I think like if you're newer to working with the body, the first thing is fall in love. You know, we don't decide our wives on Excel spreadsheets with data and the same with embodied practices, you know, Um, like just fall in love with something is the first stage. And the second stage is to fall out of love is after 10, usually five to 10 years. And anything less than that is complete beginner as far as I'm concerned. Like after five to 10 years go, okay, what's limiting me here? and allow yourself to fall out in love with it without quitting or without quitting permanently. I had a year off Aikido once, but yeah. I keep coming back to her and, um, without quitting permanently, but maybe take a year out or look at other things. You know, I, I got much more interested in like mixed martial arts, which was the other side of the spectrum. I did a year of sort of five hours a day of that. Um, and that was what I needed to do to remove myself from the sort of provincial cul-de-sac of Aikido. Uh, and learn another side of myself, you know, same with the tango I mentioned before. Um, so yeah, I think it depends where you are on the staging, falling in and out of love, and then coming back to a mature relationship as a sort of third stage. Um, that's the more kind of poetic, intuitive, emotional way of doing it as well. Interesting. Yeah. I, I always tell people that, that like the first thing you need like people tell me, I'd love to do parkour. I'd love to do this. I'd love to do that, but I need to get fit first. Right. And I always tell people, you have to find something that gives you the motivation. You have to yeah. find the thing that you love. So the first, the first priority in movement practice is find something that gets you out of bed in the morning to do it. 
Yeah, yeah. It's Malcolm Gladwell. Love comes first, right? You don't do 10,000 hours or, you know, I can dispute this figure, but you don't, the obsession that like, you know, Aikido, I just didn't miss a class at, you know, university. I walked in the first day of university, this kind of depressed, suicidal drug addict, drug selling kid, and, you know, all fucked up on many levels, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and look ethically looked at Aikido and just fell in love with it. And then I almost didn't miss a class for three years at university, despite some pretty wild things still going on, you know, for yeah. a few years. And it was like the love came first, the sense of like, God, I need this. Like my, you know, this is why I use these analogies like falling in love, because it really is like that. Um, and I say like, find something that turns you on, find something that excites you, find something that rocks your world. And then all this stuff I'm talking about, it's kind of later. You know, I'm, your audience are pretty sophisticated, so they're going to get a lot of this, I think. Um, but if someone's like 16 or 18 or whatever, and they're just like, oh, I'm kind of curious about body and stuff, I'd be like, cool, just find something you enjoy, go for it. You know, and I, had I been at another university, I think I might have taken up parkour, for example. Yeah. Had there been a group of people doing that at my university at that particular time in my life when I was looking to delve into something and get an education beyond books, which was, you know, I third generation teacher I'd grown up with this lie that information is what matters and that you know Wikipedia hasn't solved the world's problem is the problems is the joke I make um, but I'd grown up with this idea that it was just information and that had left me in a bad place and I went well there's got to be another way to be smart and at that point I was ripe you know I was fucking ready and that's when I discovered Aikido but you know it could have been parkour. It could have been um, my friend, best friend at university was a caver. She used to go down caves, you know, and kind of do this crazy practice. And it was like, okay, I could understand her doing that. She just fell in with a different group or whatever. And Aikido was just the thing that intuitively appealed to me. So, um, yeah, that's the first stage, isn't it? It's just fall in love, have fun, get obsessed with something, you know, like let it, let it take you to the end of where it will take you. And, and, you know, for me, that was living martial arts, you know, living Aikido studies, getting, going around the world with some of the masters of sort of psychology of Aikido, which was my particular sort of niche within that. And uh, that took me to a certain point. And then the learning curve slows right down. And that's the point where you need to fall out of love and let go of the sort of ego and attachment of there's this thing that I'm now quite good at, you know, cause by 30, I was pretty good for a young Aikidoka. I could go to any sort of Aikido school in the world and not look silly. Yeah. Um, and there's ego with that, there's attachment, but then the sort of truth seeking side of me, the heroic side, you might say, was saying, yeah, but what else is there? There's gotta be other ways to grow. Yeah, there's a, I think of there being sort of two main traps in movement practice. The first trap is the trap of stopping when it's hard. Yeah. So I see a lot of talented athletes who, who things come easily to, and whatever they're doing, as soon as it gets hard, they just move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you see these guys who are like, you know, B-level surfers, B-level grapplers, B-level, but they don't have any, they're not A's at anything. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other side, which is once you're good at one thing, being afraid to suck again at everything else. Yeah, got it, got it. Yeah, I mean, back to the marriage analogy, you know, this is the uh, people that get divorced every time the, the marriage is hard or the first argument with their girlfriend even before that stage, you know, without getting to the depths of it, the mm -hmm. digging the deep well to get the really good water, you know? And yeah. um, 
And then there's also the people that are in a marriage and they really should fucking leave, you know, <laughs> destroying them. But they're like, oh, I don't want to go back to dating again. That's really hard. I'm really comfortable where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I definitely see, see both of those in, in all the different arts. And I'm, you know, the fascinating thing in my world is I'm seeing such diverse groups of people. So like I was just in Moscow, right? I was there for three weeks. It's pretty representative of the work I do. I spent the first three days in a, a telecoms company, one of the big mobile phone operators, sort of high paying job, corporate fast track executives. And then the next day I got paid maybe 1% of the amount uh, doing a workshop with the gay community there, traumatized gay community. So the first workshop was on leadership. Next one was actually on money. Uh, often alternative communities have issues around money because uh, of identifying with basically losers. Um, and then the next day was yoga teachers. And they're all, you know, drinking green smoothies and you know, being yoga teachers. And the next day, psychologists. And they're all asking about each other's parents and they're tremendously complicated. Uh, and the next day, I'm at the university and I'm flirting with 200 students in the psychology department. And they're different again because they're young. So they're post-communist. So they've almost got a different culture. And this is a pretty... Uh, missing a few things out but this is a pretty average couple of weeks for me in terms of very diverse groups of people and on, on my courses you know there's, the, there's people from all these six areas that I mentioned plus a lot of coaches and business trainers you know we have movement people kung fu teachers comedians psychotherapists you know and no one's good at everything so it's always humbling and if, if and we deliberately get, get help people establish a practice we don't tell them what to do but we always encourage that they establish a practice which is completely out of their comfort zone so the tough martial artists we send to salsa dancing and the salsa dancers we send to martial arts you know um and that's fascinating because you also start to see the patterns like how teachable they are or uh which group are likely to have relationship problems uh or how they relate to things like doing their homework like we have a course manager and she knows that the free dancers are always going to be a pain in the ass to kind of do the homework because they're you know lacking the sort of structures and boundaries quite often so I, have a, I want to back up and ask a question about the, the falling in love thing. Cause I think it's really, mm. and I think that, um, that may be more difficult than you and I realize, right? Like when I, when I started parkour, it was the first thing I thought about in the morning. It was the last thing I thought about at night. Like it was literally like the same as when I fell in love yeah. with my wife. Like I, yeah, got it, got it. and, uh, and I, I also like, I got the, got to the point where I sort of, needed to widen my practice, needed to go back to these other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I totally identify with that. But then I've also recognized that for some people that, do, that, that doesn't seem to happen, you know, they go from thing to thing and there's nothing that obviously becomes their thing. Yeah. And so if you, if you've tried a, a variety of things and there isn't that, 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 that immediate connection and obsession. Yeah how do you choose a practice? Because I think fundamentally, yeah. like uh, I was reading Jordan Peterson's book, Maps of Meaning, he's talking, uh, and he's quoting Nietzsche, and Nietzsche was talking about how like, to become free in a way, you have to like deeply cultivate one thing. You have to like, you have to enslave yourself. <laughs> you have to be obedient to a principle. And it's only when you've done that for a long time that you've cultivated yourself enough that you can let it go and become free. Yeah. So I think that that stage is so critical to, to gaining the most benefit from, from all these practices. And then the question is, okay, well for you and I may have found that, that thing may have just clocked up, uh, clocked us upside the head and said, Hey, here I am. 
how does someone who who doesn't have that experience yeah. find an experience that will work for them yeah I mean, I mean the arranged marriage is a pretty good option too you know <laughs> like i mean I've got, I could go different ways with this. First of all, Nietzsche, one of the original embodied philosophers, he talked to the body as self. That was, you know, almost yeah. his idea, like pre-Freud um, and various other philosophers coming out from him, phenomenologists and the like. But anyway, um, part of me is like, you know, why the fuck aren't you in love with something? Like, what, why don't you have that passion? But then there's equally like, passion exists as an embodied phenomenon. So the more disembodied people become, the less passionate they are. Um, so there's a vicious circle here and I've, you know, I've coached a lot of people on like life purpose and what they want to do with their life and embodiment's part of that as well. When you start to tune into what brings you alive, right? Like that radar is broken in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The starters disembodiment creates a break in that radar, um, of meaning. So that's, you know, people talk about meaning, like it was just obvious to everyone. It's not obvious to everyone. Most people are walking around dead from the, you know, the neck down and gray and as a result not finding that love and that joy you know um so i feel like that's one way to look at it but i think there are people who are more generalists and i've seen this in life purpose work that there are some people who genuinely uh aren't quite as you know if i was be unfair to us we were a bit autistic or something maybe do you know what i mean like you know really obsessing like train spotters about something uh there's something quite male in that i'd say as well at the risk of upsetting people out there uh, the risk of upsetting Kathy Newman, um, <laughs> that, that ability to just, you know, in a way that most women are just too healthy and balanced to get that obsessed. It just, I remember, you know, I used to be sitting in a pub and I'd be like practicing a wrist lock on myself, you know, it was weird. You know? And um, I think there are healthier ways to do it. And the arranged marriage analogy here is that you can fall in love with something over a bit of time. It isn't always love at first sight, right? Like there are practices that I've done because I felt like I should or because I'm an embodiment trainer and I kind of wanted to round out my CV. And, you know, like, and then after a while, I was like, I remember the first time I choked someone out in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I was like, hang on a minute. That was fucking fun. You know, there's <laughs> me thinking I'm too spiritual to be competitive. And actually, it's fucking awesome. So, you know, that was, wasn't love at first sight. That took me a while. You know, that was two or three months of just getting fucking tapped out by everyone. And then I kind of not only discovered that I could win the odd game, but it was also the um, match, but it was also that I, I found my own competitive side, which I'd kind of repressed through 10 years of Aikido previous. Um, so, so that was a kind of almost arranged marriage. Cause I, you know, I thought it was something I sort of should do in some ways, you know? Um, yeah. So I feel like it's possible to come at it other ways. And I, I think there's always a danger in anything when people have had some success where they go, well, this is the way for everyone. All right because yeah. this is what worked for me. So the obsession route is one way to go. Um, and it's also lifetime, right? Like me and you, we have commitments now. So someone coming to me at 40 with a business and kids and a wife, that's real different from someone who's 18. And I'm like, you know, go to the Shaolin temple, yeah. you know? You know what I mean? It's a very different thick kind of commitment they can make at 18. I'm like, you know, or you just finished university, 21 years old. It's like, okay, go run away with the circus. Like I lived with the circus in Ethiopia. I lived in Aikido dojos. I, you know, just, just spent a lot of years in my twenties, just getting drunk and, you know, meeting interesting people. And do you know what I mean? Like the now it's, that's not the kind of thing I've got time for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that, that was kind of what I was thinking when, when I was listening to us talk about that, that falling in love process. It was like, that's a lot easier 
when you're a young person. And I feel like it, it is, as you mentioned, I think that happens more for men than for women. Like there are mm. certainly women who, who have that same experience, but I feel like I see that kind of obsession, obsessive falling in love with a practice more from young men. It's, it's risk-taking as well. I mean, there is some pretty, without, again, upsetting anyone too much, there is pretty good evidence in terms of young men's risk-taking, um, you know, in terms of we're genetically disposable, right? And the testosterone levels, you know, if, if, you, if you give testosterone to rats, they start fighting each other. Yeah. And it's, it's a pretty antisocial drug, you know. And um, I, I think some of that risk-taking that is associated with young men is necessary to be like, okay, I'm going to go to the Shaolin Temple. It's not necessarily a logically smart move to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, to just say fuck it you know um and i think certainly working with social shame is quite an interesting factor here um i, I was very lucky i had an alcoholic dad so I, in the village and what that meant was at a quite a young age my sort of sense of social shame just got kind of turned off yeah I just went, okay, screw what other people think and that's fantastic for sort of really following your, you know, your passion, following your bliss or following your heartbreak as someone else says, which I think is a much nicer way of putting it. Um, yeah. If there's, there isn't that sense of sort of social conformity in quite the same way. And I, I, there's something about being stupid as well. There's something about actually being unreasonable. There's a great video of a, the first, uh, I think it was American to train with Japanese in judo in the sixties for the Olympics and he had a Japanese trainer and it was just as Japan was sort of opening up after World War II, early 60s. And he said, our trainer asked the unreasonable, you know, like 2000 push-ups yeah. before you even start training. And there's something in, you know, being willing to surrender to that. Like, it's like climbing Mount Everest. You know, I stayed in one dojo, which was, you know, like, I mean, it was the teachers. It was like having a tiger just throw you around. It was dangerous and unreasonable. Um, and now I wouldn't do that. I'd yeah. actually be abusive, actually. Now I'd, I'd advise against it in some ways. But there was a time in my life where that unreasonable throwing oneself into something uh, has its benefits, you know. So I, um, you know, I went to war zones. That was another thing that I felt compelled to do and tested a lot of the kind of theories I'd learned really on the sharp edge of life. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that I have done that as I'm, I'm now approaching 40. And I ain't going to put my wife and, you know, my mom and all the rest of my niece and all the rest of my family through that shit again. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it is stages of life as well. I'm just thinking out loud here. So no, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you and I were in the business of basically trying to capture the benefit of these practices and these lifestyle decisions that we've made that maybe the, most people aren't going to have the opportunity to make. Yeah, there's some people going to hell to steal fire from the gods, right? Yeah. Like, that's okay. And I can teach a business person a basic centering technique from Aikido and they can apply it, practice it once a day when they open their email and they'll still get a lot of benefit from that. And that's okay. I, I think the real pros in this field should have gone to the edges and they should have suffered and had the obsession and the love and all those things if, if someone's setting themselves up as a pro in this field. But certainly you do not need that to benefit from this, which I've seen time and time again with every group imaginable. I've deliberately found the hardest groups to work with who I thought would be least embodied and most resistant to this work from politicians in the House of Lords to soldiers to you know, I don't know, single mums. I mean, every single group, every time I find a new group, I'm like, yes, great, I'm happy. But for a few years, it was like my mission to sort of take embodied work to 
the groups that people said I couldn't work with um, just because I'm stubborn and bloody minded and was a young man trying to prove a point. Um, but what I saw time and time again is that these simple things people really can benefit from. Um, so you don't need to do all this extreme stuff. Yeah. So I wanted to, to, to loop back to the social shame element because like going back to this idea that we're trying to extract the benefit of our experiences and then give it to people who don't necessarily have the same psychology, don't necessarily have the same life stage where this stuff entered into their life. And so we have to, we have to be able to like recognize where our narrative doesn't help us understand the people that we're working with. Yeah. And so we're talking a little bit about the idea of, you know, this obsessive style being kind of yang. It's, it's, it's a young male thing. Um, yep. And then you brought up the idea of social shame. And this is something that I think uh, like parkour is a, is a discipline that is really predominantly male right now. And, and one of the things that I think has driven that is that it involves potentially looking really stupid in front of large groups of people in public. <laughs> I was, I was just Phil, I was just doing a photo shoot in Moscow and it was, with various students of mine doing embodied yoga poses in really public places. Mm -hmm. And some of them look quite silly if you don't know what you're looking at. Yeah. And because they're sort of archetypal shapes. So they're by definition quite extreme psychologically. Yeah. And um, it was quite interesting to notice the difference between the students. And there was a gender difference in terms of, you know, and Russian culture is quite interested in what other people think of you because, you know, the fucking KGB would, would uh, get rid of you if your neighbors reported you, right? There's a history to that. Um, <laughs> some dark history to it. But, um, you know, there's also this almost Asian sort of Chinese view of face and what other people think of you. But I did, did see a gender difference amongst the students in terms of how silly people were prepared to look. Yeah. So, like, it seems to me that most of the guys who started parkour, most of the early adopters, were people who basically could, like, do something, land on their face, in a public space and laugh it off and have like yeah. zero social, like psychological damage from the fact that some stranger may be laughing at them. And I think this has been one of the things that has made it harder for women to, to enter it because I think that, that, that both possibly both like on a temperamental level and on a cultural level, that's less, it, it works less for them. And then, um, and then, and then, and then you have these like add on effects where it's like once that culture is the culture of the discipline, then it gets harder for someone to enter it who doesn't have that culture. So you, your work is you work in an area where we're like predominantly female, right? Most of the, these kind of embodiment things seem to be maybe a little bit more on the feminine side or attracted more to the female. So we had a weird thing this year that hardly any men signed up for course, which hasn't been my career arc because I tend to have a fairly yak style, which men like on the whole. Uh, in different countries, it's different. So if I teach Russian yoga teachers, we're looking at 95% female. Okay. If I teach uh, life coaches, business coaches, we might be 60 to 70% female. But I mean, in the Russian telecoms company, I was working with 80% men. Okay. So it really depends which group I'm working with. But I'd say in the field, it also depends on the embodied practice. Like there's way more male sort of Tai Chi, Qigong, martial arts teachers, but dance movement therapies, super female. Yeah. Um, these different air fields have different uh, gender biases, I'd say, depending on the nature of the embodied practice. So, you know, traditionally, the sort of sexism has been the body is female. 
and, and, and intellect is male. That's been the traditional sort of split, right? In terms of the body mind split, that's that itself has been somewhat gendered. Um, and there are different pressures. And I think to be fair to women in terms of like the pressures on the body, they are different. And well, in some ways they may be evening out in a bad way. There's sort of pressures on women to look good uh, and they're being judged on that is still huge. So I do want to kind of acknowledge that to be fair. Yeah, I was talking to one of my uh, female friends who, uh, Caitlin Pentrella, who I'm going to try to have on the podcast soon. Uh, she was talking about like, you know, just being uncomfortable doing quadrupedal movement in public because of the sexualization of that position, the way that someone's going to perceive her. Like as Got a it. man being bent over on your hands and knees, it doesn't, it doesn't scream sexualization in the same way or we don't perceive ourselves as potentially objectifiable in the same way as women. But, uh, but I'm, I'm I was particularly interested in asking you this question because I, it's a question that's very interesting to me. And, uh, and, and it, I felt like there might be a very interesting perspective from the embodiment point of view and someone who's worked maybe a lot more with women about how do we, how do we cultivate somebody who has that sense of social shame to be able to take on these practices and develop that deep love and ability to go into the obsessive phase. Um, Let me broaden the question. Can I broaden the question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I wrote a little ebook for my students called How to Work in Business, A Guide for Hippies. Yeah. It's really a guide for anyone from alternative cultures, whether it's parkour or martial arts or meditation or yoga, working with mainstream cultures, whether it's business or mainstream education or politicians or military or whatever. And um, there's a whole world, I could say, about language and the purpose of using aims and how you dress. I mean, there's a whole structure for that, right? Like we've been talking a little bit about business recently, me and you, and there's a whole art to that because most of us who are deep in body arts, male or female, are fucking weird. And we think differently, we dress differently, we talk in weird ways, you know? And like that is a whole training for people I work with. Um, and then this sort of sort of being willing to do the unusual. I mean, I'm always actually quite touched when I have, say, business people in a workshop because it takes a lot of vulnerability, you know, to do that for them. And, and, and there's an art to making it feel safe for them and setting it up and introducing it gradually, and calibrating that right as to what's too much, what's too little, you know. Um, that's really the art of this, and that's a lot of what I'm teaching. Like when people come to me who already body people, that's a lot of what I'm teaching them is how to. I'm pretty good translator, I would say. You know, I'm pretty good at taking this to groups that might otherwise, you know, a room full of the police, for example. You know, I taught some of the top police in London. And uh, there's a policewoman there who's responsible for all the armed response units, you know, in the UK. So some pretty heavy hitting people that have, might have quite conservative views, which back when I was more liberal was challenging kind of politically. Uh, but, but also it's a practice, right? Like any of my friends even, let alone students who spend any time with me, they send they soon learn uh, to, to desensitize to social shaming because I'm just doing stupid shit all the time. And like they, they realize like, like a, you know, I don't know, like a great practice would be like complimenting beautiful women just respectfully and uh, with consideration for the context, etc. learn to compliment beautiful women because that's fucking terrifying for most men. And, you know, even if you just, it can be an old lady, right? You don't even have to be going anywhere with it, but just be like, oh, you know, excuse me, I hope you don't mind me saying, I thought you looked absolutely lovely. Tell something sincere, something real from the heart. Have a lovely day. Goodbye. So that's a practice I might give to a student to do simply to desensitize them to what other people think. And, you know, doing that in public um, 
doing that in crowded places is even more challenging, but like that's a practice. That's something you can get better at. And what you quickly realize is, oh look, I didn't die. I didn't get ejected from the cave. In fact, the girl smiled and wished me a nice day and it seemed to make her happy. Do you know what I mean? Like nine times out of 10. So it's like this practices like that, that you can actually give students to gradually, like you would practice weightlifting. I mean, all these things are practices, right? So it's like, how do you get better at weightlifting? Well, you find a weight which isn't too heavy and isn't too light, and then you lift that and you do some reps, then you rest and you integrate, and then you keep doing that, and then you increase the weight or the reps, right? Mm-hmm. So that same, or how do you learn language, right? Same basic principle of practice could apply to this kind of desensitization of realizing it's not the end of the world if you do something sort of socially unusual or whatever. Yeah, so um, I, th- I think there's a there's a missing piece there, which is how to how to make somebody or let's not say make somebody how to present it for somebody in a way that's relevant to them, right? Yeah. Like like once someone decides that that lifting something heavier is relevant, then <laughs> then then the linear progression of like putting more weight on the bar is actually really simple. But for a lot of people. Yeah realizing that a heavier weight on the bar is actually aligned with their goals is the problem. Yeah. And with, this is what you did with the podcast. You asked me this question of like, why should my listeners be interested in this? You know? And, and I, and that's the reason I deliberately came back to that question in the podcast. Cause I want, you know, you guys out there listening to speak directly to you to be like, at least have the potential to be motivated to listen to this and to listen well, you know, yeah. to listen with intention to, to learn or to take something from it. Um, and that's hard when, when people aren't in the room, right? I'm just kind of guessing. And I, you know, I tend to know the kind of things that might motivate different groups. So with business groups, it might be, you know, effectiveness or with the HR manager, it might be looking at churn rate, you know, employee engagement, return on investment. I've learned all the buzzwords from uh, my subscription to HR magazine, which I took 10 years ago to learn all the buzzwords, you know, like I learned the language as if I'm learning Russian, which is what I'm doing now. You know, it's like uh, that, what mo- also listen it's like what motivates people like what are you interested in here you know um yeah so i feel like that's part of the process and a key part which i teach my students is why are we doing this because they say the business people i work with they'll do some crazy shit they'll do some out there californian tree hugging craziness if there's a good reason and if they're in they won't do shit and you can't assume that just because they're in the room, right? Like, you know, who sent them there? How did they get there? We were talking about this the other day, right? It's like the yeah. HR manager might have employed me to increase employee engagement, but they don't care about that. What they care about is not, uh, you know, shouting at their wife. You know, they care about getting home in time to see their kids or whatever, right? Yeah, so, yeah. It's, so this, you know, getting that um, buy-in, that investment, I think that's primary to anything. That The other one is, I'd say, is being really clear on the method so a lot of people from alternative backgrounds will speaking metaphors or outcomes. So they won't give clear what Paul Linden, one of my teachers calls operational language. So they won't say pay attention to the sensations of breathing as air goes in and out of your nose. They'll say empty your mind, for example, the worst meditation instruction in the history of the world. And like that's a potential outcome or kind of a metaphor. It's not a specific instruction. So when people have a why and a specific how, it's not really a problem, you know, assuming you're not dressing outlandishly or doing whatever, even that you can get away with after a while. But 
I'd say that why and that how is, is a sort of key place to start. And there's no excuse not to have that in any field, I would say. Yeah. It's interesting. There's some, something triggered me in that, in that about uh, an idea that's obviously big in the yoga community, which is the idea of alignment. Um, and, and I had a conversation recently with, uh, with a friend of mine, Stefan Bigru, who's one of the top uh, parkour teachers, who's one of David Bell's students. And we're talking about like the necessity of being really deeply aligned with what you're attempting and where you're trying to go when you're doing things where you might die. <laughs> so like there's, a, there's an embodied sensation of this is right for me and and my motivation is for me. And when you're in that place, then you can, you can do jumps where you might die. Um, and if you're not in that place, you really need to not do it. And, and classically, like when guys get injured in parkour, it's always because they let something else other than their own embodied sensation of the, the, the connection to the jump drive the jump, right? So you, you, uh, you look, you're, you're there, um, my friend Dylan Baker, he almost died doing a, a Kong um, to cat like 300 feet off the ground. And he, um, he basically did it because he had asked his friends to come up there and film the film him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he felt like pressure to perform up to the expectations of the group. Like he had, so my mind tells me I should do this. Like I did this last week, even though this week is different mm -hmm. or I'm showing off or whatever. So there's an external driver rather than an intuitive embodied felt sense of it. Right. Exactly. So, so this came up to ask you about, because I think this is such a fundamental thing about, about movement practice, but it's also the fundamental thing about like, that's really what you're looking for in life is that how can I be better at, getting myself in that place where I feel like my why, my how, my what, they're all aligned effectively in the direction that I'm going. Yeah. And, and that's a felt experience. It's an embodied experience. It's not a thing that you can, you can, uh, you can extract and write on down on a page perfectly. It's something that you have to feel. So I'm curious how you, how you look at the cultivation of that, how you see that in the students and, and get yourself set up so that the, what you're trying to do with them helps them be aligned with it. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And it's body awareness based skill, like all yeah. body awareness based, right? Like, yeah. you know, from, am I hungry or am I overeating? Because I'm, you know, mo that's emotionally driven. That's what I was working on a lot at the end of last year. It's kind of blind spot for me. And that's one very practical level, right? Yeah. Up, we talked about falling in love, right? Nobody works that out on an Excel spreadsheet with data. That's intuitive, <laughs> you know, like you fucking know this already. And, like and then we've got life purpose and i'm really fine-tuned to life purpose stuff now it's not just like oh i'm an embodiment teacher it's like for who when how where yeah and i'm really like constantly feeling into like is there a rightness to this job and the ultimate is where this is kind of flow state where i'm you know completely i had one beautiful embodied yoga session in moscow it's just timeless and the interpreter the translator she actually got caught up with it and she'd never had it before in her life and at the end of the session she said what just happened? Where did the time go? Why was she done 10 sessions with me before 10 classes, but she said that was different, you know? So that's the sort of ultimate end of it. And, and I haven't found a way to be there all the time for sure. But even at the, yeah, it might sound a bit abstract. So, I mean, even at the, um, the low end of just like, am I hungry right now? Well, that one for me, is just like, do I need to rest? You know, like, am I overworking? Mm. Like that tuning into the body and 
just because someone's athletic doesn't mean they have that. In fact, potentially the opposite. If you're treating your body as a performance machine, that's disembodying. So some of the hardest people I've trained are dancers, for example, professional dancers or like Olympic athletes who have just dissociated from their bodies because it's always in pain. Um, so yeah, just because someone can do a big jump or do a good roundhouse kick or whatever, doesn't mean they have that tuning in. And increasingly, you know, I'm just coming back to the simplicity of it. I mean, there's extreme states and extreme practices and these all things, but you know, it's just on a daily basis being like, okay, how am I now? Or what wants to happen in this conversation now? You know, am I listening or speaking? What's the felt sense of that? Um, so yeah, kind of the simplicity on the other side of all the embodiment training complexity is what I'm most interested in at the moment. What do you pay attention to? Like if, if we're thinking of, of, of a human being as, as, as much the body as the mind, and you're, you're looking at a group of students and you're, you're trying to find the way to, to move them that's relevant to them and relevant to their, their, um, their goals. What is the thing that you're queuing off of to see in their body that they're embodying the experience effectively? Yeah, I mean, Jordan Peterson says this thing about the truth makes you stronger. Well, that's literally true. I mean, Paul Linden does tests on this. They're kind of like, you know, he has people kind of uh, lie and then tries and pushes them over and then tell the truth and you can't push them over. Yeah, so yeah. That's very literal. And you can find this on YouTube if you're interested. Um, so this, in terms of being stronger, I think that's a key one. But in terms of practices for beginners, it's like, okay, do a year of body-based meditation. So breath, breath meditation is fantastic because it's the breath is one of the most sensitive indicators. And, you know, if I'm holding my breath, that says something to me, right? As opposed to a fluid movement. And it might be the kind of good anxiety of like, oh shit, because there is a, a way in which when you're on a date with the woman who's going to be your wife, you should be scared. And that's okay, you know? And, and then there's the like in the wrong place feeling. And I think learning to differentiate those two is important. The sort of excitement from the anxiety um, partly some of this is an unconscious competence for me now, so it's hard to teach, but what I've found helps people is just increasing the level of body awareness through sitting practices for subtlety, movement practices for dynamism, which is more like life and relational practices, because that's really like life. Mm -hmm. And you kind of need those three. And if someone has those three, like a good sitting practice, you know, could be standing, but still meditation yeah. practice, something like a yoga practice or a Tai Chi practice. And then something like, uh, could be Aikido or partner dance or some kind of relational practice. Um, then they're going to develop that skill. Does that answer your question? I feel like you're actually answering a better question than I've asked around this subject. So thank <laughs> you. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm flowing with it in, in, this 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 aspect of being able to embody and it's something that i'm paying attention to like how do i listen better that's that's another you know you mentioned earlier that you feel like listening isn't your best skill and uh and i feel the same way um and i really like uh jordan peterson's chapter on listen as if the person you're 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 speaking to knows something you don't <laughs> yeah i mean sometimes i imagine they've got a gun to my head you know that works <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a 16 year old and I'm, you know, back to, we're talking about love. It's a bit romantic today, I think actually. Yeah. Uh, they're talking about the 16 year olds in love, you know, looking with yeah. that rapt attention. So I think there's different sort of ways into that. Um, but certainly for me, the self listening precedes that 
I'm pretty good at that. And I'm learning to put it into more relational context. The self, you know, the self listening is, is kind of a key part there. And in you know, a lot of meditation, I've done retreats, extended retreats, solitary retreats, monastic stays. It was very solitary. And there's something about bringing it into the relational, which is um, really needed and often lacking from a traditional sort of meditation point of view. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had martial artists who are very calm, but as soon as it gets conversational, they can't handle it they haven't actually transferred their skills from even from the relational domain let's say the jiu-jitsu people into the conversational domain or you know can they take a compliment so there's yeah. there's some bridges that are needed to take it into sort of you know romantic or social or uh, conversational kind of components as well those bridges can be made pretty quick once people already have the sort of base say self-regulation or self-expressive skills that they can learn just through the body mm -hmm. yeah I'm, I'm big on this idea that uh, body practices are incredibly educational for life mm. if you do the work to transfer them. Yeah, the transfer we talk about, the transfer skills is, you know, I've invented this thing in body yoga principles and a lot of it is just adding some decent transfer skills to yoga because, yeah. you know, otherwise, you know, they, they are going to stay on the mat. I, I spent years working for an organization called Aiki Extensions, which takes Aikido off the mat. And I first worked it out with Aikido and then I realized these principles could be used for yoga or, you know, my students do Kung Fu or one does queer partner dancing. One of my students, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Once you understand the principles, you know, this is why we talk about embodied yoga principles or embodied principles that you can transfer into anything. Um, but you do need to do that transfer. And I feel like integration or life transfer is usually the missing piece with most body practices. Yeah. Uh, and that's just done massively inefficiently. And one nice thing about business is they've really pushed me over the last 10 years to be, they'd be like, right, you've got a day. You know, in Russia, I had uh, 40 people for a day and a half, two different groups of 40 people. It's mm -hmm. like a day and a half. And I've got to turn them into embodied leaders. You know, it's <laughs> like, wow. I mean, some of that is just establishing motivation practice for future work. But it's also like, I want to give them some of the real value. You know, yeah. they ain't got three years of living Aikido residential. Um, and most embodied arts are tremendously inefficient in terms of actually improving your life. And there's things that can be done, which, um, increase that, increase that efficiency. So the, the question that I was, that I, that I'm, that I'm going back to was, okay, we need to, we need to get, we need to, to extract these lessons for our students and then there's this felt there's this felt knowledge within you that that it's working or it's not working right and then the student has that same thing there's this embodied sensation that tells you what's happening and then there's the question like how do you as a teacher uh recognize that better how do you develop like the uh, heuristic set of Obviously, this is, a, this is something that you have to cultivate over time. But if you have someone who's new and you're trying to, to teach them to know whether they're, whether they're connecting effectively with their students, what is the thing that they're paying attention to? Like, what do they look for to see that sense of alignment, that sense of embodied flow in their students? I, mean, I think there is an internal and fairly recognizable internal sense of rightness, we might say, in ourselves. Yeah. But there's also, this isn't just an intuitive feeling, there's also just data and feedback, right? 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of what I do with business people is give them, I say, don't believe a word I say, and I give them experiences and I'm like, oh, look, that worked better than that. Or, you, you know, you came up with a completely different statement of around this business problem, a completely different idea. Um, so I feel like there is always data suggesting that there's always like, wow, that was just 10 times better than what I thought of one minute ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are sort of proving it for themselves and getting feedback that way as well. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm getting to the heart of what you're, you're interested in here or not. Uh, you may have, you may have gone over my head with your cleverness. So uh, once again, <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a good it's a, it's a question that that occurs to me within this just because uh it's something I'm really paying attention to in my own in my own teaching. Um, I'll give you another maybe another angle on it, which is one thing I've noticed in teaching is my perception of how well the teaching is going mm-hmm. is is only partially based on the experience of my students. It's also partially about things that are internal to me. So mm-hmm. I might like feel a little depressed, a little tired, like a little beat down because of stuff that's happening in my life. Mm-hmm. And I might be able to put on a class and have everybody in the class have an amazing time, but I don't know that they're having an amazing time because I'm not having an amazing time. Sure. You're well, free. I mean, you're, you're the, you're the tool you're sensing through, right? So yeah. that's part of the body perspective is realizing like right now I haven't eaten in about 24 hours. I'm fasting today. Yeah. Right. But I'm aware of that as part of the lens through which I'm listening to you with now. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side, if I like, uh, one thing that I play with and use as an energy in my teaching is I'll move while my students are moving. So, uh, it's something, it's an idea I got from Margaret Stryker, which is you shouldn't do too much demonstration because you can kind of feed too much information to the students and prevent them from, from organizing themselves. But what you should do is once your students are moving and you've given them a task, you can move with them and you can move on the outside so that they can basically pull energy and excitement and inspiration off of what you're doing. Yeah. And there's a somatic crutch there as well. Just like if I'm teaching a student centering, I'll stand real close to them and get real relaxed and you know, their body is just mirroring mine, you know, this physiological basis for that. There's no magic involved. And then I'll gradually back off. You know, and then eventually I'm standing the other side of the room. They're doing it for themselves. But, you know, I've done some state transfer just through uh, like proximity space state transfer, you know, and mirroring based transfer. So they can see me, you know, I'm using my voice. I'm using all the different modalities that influence us from an embodiment point of view that a teacher has to work with. And um, and I gradually remove those. So, you know, that's definitely something I'm playing with. Um, Maybe it's a different thing. Yeah. I mean, it seems connected. Like how do, how do you use the, your presence and your voice and, and, and how that, that embodies itself in the student. So that's the kind of fourth, just, just for me, where we've talked about four elements of embodied intelligence. I use Daniel Goldman's model of emotional intelligence to embodiment, you know, self-awareness is the basis self-regulation. We talked about being able to be centered, being able to regulate yourself listening you know being able to be open and embodied listening you know to notice the changes in your own body as a result of the other people uh, you can do that if you're relaxed um and then influence is the last one you know as kind of come to the close here we're actually kind of covered the full spectrum of how do we influence people whether that's inspiring them or turning them on or elevating their mood or you know calming them down mm-hmm. um and, you know, essentially embodiment's infectious, right? That's why when you go to another city, you feel different because New York is not Hawaii. <laughs> you know, like after a month in Israel, I'm coming back to England and just upsetting everyone because I'm kind of developed this fastness. <laughs> we have too much about culture. Americans are so culture blind. 
part of your culture. Like I love talking about embodied culture, and like for me, that's fascinating. Like you know, the, the culture is like the shared body, right? And it's it's the way in which it's infectious. And when you make a class, you're making a mini culture. Yep. Yeah, I'm very obsessed with culture right now. That that's probably too big of a of a of a black hole to go down. So <laughs> we'll tease people with that one then. Next podcast, embodied yeah, embodied culture. Let's let's do it again. Um. I wanted to ask you one more question that's kind of been on my mind throughout the podcast. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Uh, there's broadly, it seems to me that within, within a practice, you, it can have an internal or an external focus, right? So you can, you can be climbing a tree and your focus can be, how does my body feel moving in this tree? Right? Yeah. What's happening to my emotional state as I move in this tree? Yeah. Like, are my, are my shoulders getting loose? Is, is, is my connection between my different parts of my body moving? Or you can be focusing on like, am I going faster? Am I getting here better? Is, is this movement connected better? Is, uh, am I not going to die when I do this big jump where I'm exposed at height? And, um, and it, it seems to me that, that body embodiment practices tend to be oriented towards um, internal focus there's an element of that but if there's too much of that it's weird and useless <laughs> okay so uh, let's get let's dig a little bit deeper this is my like this is why i haven't really gone deep into like feldenkrais or somatics or alexander or any of this stuff is because i see people who seem to be getting so internally focused that let me just tell you about my feelings like <laughs> I'm sorry. I just need to stop a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So let continue. They get so internally focused. They what become losers. They lose track of relationship. They don't achieve anything in life. Yeah, you said it brother, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I've upset all the hippies already, man. So let's just fucking go for it. Um, yeah, sure, that's the stage. There, there's something, there's something that seems myopic to me. And like a lot of times, like if the focus is movement, they're not, they're not actually going anywhere with the movement. Right. They're, yeah. you know, they're, they're sort of infinitely changing a s small things about the way they experience and perceive <laughs> a, a extremely low level expression of movement. Yeah. But you already highlighted the opposite of that, which is that yeah. when you're, when you're so focused on the ex external, then you can actually disembody from yourself. Your body sure. becomes a machine that performs the things that you want to have done. Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's this, and then we know from a, and I think this is connected to something we know about cueing, right? Yeah. The, the science of cueing is basically that if you, if I tell you to focus on jumping further or pushing the ground away harder, or, you know, um, feel like when you hit a bag, bend the bag in half, like that's a cue that's going to increase power. If I tell you to like squeeze your glutes or mm -hmm. focus on the way your scapula is moving, et cetera. We orientate to goals. And if you orientate too much to the body, it's actually going to screw up your movement and socially also just make you weird. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of weird when you're talking to someone, all their in, in, you know, attention's inside. But you know, if there's a happy medium here, like even in this conversation, I'm tracking my own breath, my own mood, my energy. I'm kind of tracking, okay, I haven't eaten today. Is that going to fucking me up somehow? You know, I'm kind of tracking my intuition and what's bringing me alive in the conversation. 
but mostly I'm paying attention to you, yeah. right? And some sense of the listener out there. Uh, and then there's a movement. So I might occasionally just touch back in on myself 100% or 99% mm-hmm. and then go out again much more. You know, so I, I feel like the ability, if you're trapped in either the doing external or the internal feeling, I mean, neither of those are helpful if that's all you can do. Yeah, and I, um, well, I guess there's two questions within that. One is how does somebody who has external goals grab these, these internalized practices in a way that that's going to transfer and that's not going to interfere? Because if you start thinking a lot about how you're breathing or how you're organizing your spine or how you're doing that, and those thoughts are, tr- are trying to enter your mind as you're performing extremely high level intense skills, you will, you will get yourself hurt, right? Like if you're in the middle of a, of a complex course where you need to put your foot down That's on a branch. A place to practice. I mean, a place to practice has to be safe enough, right? That you can learn a new mm-hmm. skill. So yeah. if the new skill is increasing your kind of interioception, kind of emotional sense, you know, intuitive sense, then the place to practice is on the low branches, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I've found personally within my own journey is that sometimes if I started in, focusing on internalized practices, I get a creep where the thoughts will occur where they're not optimal, <laughs> right? So you, so you need to be able to divide your attentional focus or, or develop a, a strategy for attending to the right things in the right contexts. Does that make sense? And so I see a lot of people who come from these internal practices who are always talking about, oh, you just need to pay attention to your breath. You need to do this. And it's like, that's mm. you're fucking, you're, you're going to die. <laughs> you try to do this. Stuff you, do. you know, like if, you, if, if Anderson Silva is trying to punch you in the head and you're like, oh, am I too afraid of him trying to punch you in the head? How do I, how do I emotionally accept that he's trying to punch me in the head? You know, like you're going to be knocked out before you, you address any, anything. And yeah. the same thing when you're jumping at height in the tree, it's like, if you're, if you're worried about your, your breathing and you need to put your foot down on a branch that's an inch wide, it's like, you know, you're fucked. So, so, so I, I see people who get stuck in this mentality of the, of the internal practices and the same thing, this is, more for me, this came from like internal cueing from a strength and conditioning perspective it got in my way a lot as I got into this higher level movement practices. So it's a question that I'm, I'm thinking about how do I, how do I, because I think that there's another tendency, which is if you're just focused on the external, right, then we can say, fuck, we'll just, we'll never use the internal cues. But then maybe we miss the point, which was that the practice what are you trying to build, right? Like exactly. back to where we started from, like what's the point? Exactly. Like, get real good at jumping on branches or lifting weights or whatever, but how does that help your marriage? How does that help your parenting? How does that help your business, right? Your politics, whatever. Yeah. Like, like what are the skills you actually want to build? And I, I don't have any problem with anyone building any skills. I'll just say, you know, I started in Body Yoga Principles class. I'll say, what do you care about? Mm-hmm. And people will tell me. And then I'll say, let's do a yoga that, that works with that that build skills that help that you know i always start with people's real values and concerns you know mm-hmm. and um so yeah i think that's always the starting point to come back to and sometimes is the humility of coming down a branch until you kind of get the hang of it or whatever it is so um so we're not we're not far to being out of time so i could do like another sort of five ten ten minutes max and um i'm just okay. looking 
clock there we started a bit later than we thought so yeah yeah it's dying to talk about i'd love to ask about i mean me and you we can talk shit all day can't we we yeah we have yeah. these like epic conversations I'm, I'm like wondering what's like most of service to the listener or could be most most kind of useful to everyone out there um i was just i was just thinking that we'd be we'd be closing up right here at 9 45 so i wanted to ask that last question um because it was something that was kind of stuck minutes, on my mind. What's that? Yeah, I could, I could do another 10 minutes total. Okay. Well, let's just kind of, um, let's finish with this. If there's, if there's key takeaways that the, the, from the outside, you're, 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 you're growing an interest in the movement culture and natural movement. And you're, you're saying, man, these guys, they're, they're very aligned with, with embodiment, but there's something that they, that, that they can do better that we can offer them mm-hmm. what it what would be the, the the most basic place for people to start or the biggest takeaways that the movement community could get from embodiment practice and, you know I, I first of all would say not necessarily even a skill though there are skills which aren't widely taught in the movement world you know mm-hmm. from various body practices but i'd say it's just a perspective like what we've talked about today because I kind of assume that most people out there are smart, they're practicing, they've got experiences and having this perspective, I'd love to, you know, if you start a Facebook thread on this or whatever, we'll see like just having this perspective next time they go training. Yeah. So it's like, take this, you know, wherever, wherever you train outside or in the gym or, you know, kickboxing studio, whatever you do, take this perspective with you and just see what it changes. You know, you're a big fan of discovery learning, right? Like we don't mm-hmm. tell people, do this this and this so I, I would put it in that kind of format assuming people have that intelligence and just giving them that credit and saying okay how does this change things for you and i, I feel like the questions will open up and, and and it will develop in that community i don't want to come to it like arrogantly sort of saying look this is what you need to learn yeah that's a good one um so to just reiterate what we've said earlier embodiment is a is a way of 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 using physical practices to uh, to cultivate the mind body connection better so that our felt sense of ourself in the world um, and our capacity to to do all the things that the body mind does can grow over time to learn about yourself to become more aware of yourself as a person which will happen long term slowly and accidentally through many practices anyway right but it takes time that's not your intention you'll start noticing like oh shit i always pick these kind of partners to spar with what's going on with me you know i always like to win or i always like to lose (laughs) Uh, whatever it is um so there's the awareness and then there's as you say the development which is the choice which is like okay like how am i actually building skills that i can transfer into my life that are useful for my life not just as a metaphor like oh life's a bit like jujitsu or whatever you know um but actually like what are the concrete things that i can build and transfer and what do i want to build you know what matches my life and my values that to me is just that's the cathedral to build rather than the wall you know that's the and that just strikes me as it's so because there's so much diversity and range now in the kind of movement world, it's just so open and free for that, that why not enrich it? You don't lose anything, you know, like in fact, you're going to be more motivated to lift the weight. You know, you're probably going to get physically stronger. You know, we don't sacrifice all the health benefits, the movement benefits. Um, So why not bring that perspective? And I think some people just will say, you know what, I'm just a mover. I don't care. But other people are going to be like, wow, this is, this is opening up a whole new world. Just having that as an inquiry. 
Yeah. And then they can learn the specific skills with the experts and can put them in touch with people. And, you know, like this is someone you might want to study with or, you know, dance movement therapy brings in this perspective that you might not be aware of or whatever. Yeah. One, uh, I think it's funny in a way that you, know, you, uh, you say health, like it's somehow separate from, from embodiment. Uh, as as an, as an emphasis, so health obviously is the basis of embodiment. But for example, in the yoga world, health is such an obsession. Yeah. I'm just like, no, I don't really get ill. Like I get ill maximum one day a year. Um, you know, from all my lifestyle facts, my life expectancy is pretty good. I've got loads of energy. Uh, you know, I can fuck my wife whenever I want. I can you know walk to the shops. I, I can dance. I can fight. I can play with my niece. I don't need any more health. Mm-hmm. I don't need a fucking six pack. You know, like not just yeah. aesthetically, but even health wise. And I know for some people that is a hell of a good place to start. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, okay, if I'm already pretty healthy by any definition that matters to me, why would I focus on that? Yeah. Well, for me, it seems like you can't separate health from the embodied sense of yourself in the world. It's like if your VO2 max is great and, you know, your blood markers are all awesome and your body fat percentage is perfect and you're, you walk around in a body that you feel disconnected from with an emotional state. That's not fun for you. That feels drifting and aimless. Like, are you healthy? Well, here's the thing. Do you like, let's say health can lead to confidence, for example. Right. Yeah. But do you want to aim at building your confidence or do you want to aim at building your health to eventually build your confidence? You know, like, and I just, it just seems like such a long way around to me, but I mean, I, I mean, I get what you're saying about health. I just think it's just such a fucking obsession that, unless you're having health problems right now, um, why focus on that? Yeah. It, it's not so much that I'm saying, uh, focus, uh, I'm not saying focus on health. I'm, mm. I'm saying that health without, without an embodied perspective is an incomplete paradigm. Yeah, for sure. And there's, if you have real health, it has that integrated emotional side to it as well. Right. Yeah. Like your moods, your happiness, the fact that you're, you know, my one was I'd get, I'd overwork, which was an embodied pattern. I yeah. then would reward myself with food yeah. and kind of an addictive tendency around that. So is that a health issue? Yeah, it's about food, but is it holistic? Sure as fuck is. And if you want a solution to that, if you want to build that, you know, work with that, then I've gone from, you know, kind of like a good diet to all of a sudden this really rich holistic health practice that I can practice three times a day when I'm eating. Been obsessed with food today because I haven't eaten. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, yeah, no, I think that's incredibly valuable for people to uh, to look at their their relationship with food as something more than just the amount of calories, right? It's like what's what's driving you behaviorally, and and that's that's something you can take into everything. So so uh, so maybe embodiment is is this this drive to study these things within yourself. Yeah, so for me, food is now fascinating in a way it didn't used to be. And this is kind of a blind spot for me. You know, sex becomes interesting in a different way. And, you know, certainly martial arts is, you know, that was the first area that kind of opened up to me, this weird special area, as it were. Um, But I also just think this is about, you know, I was talking to MSU and I was saying, "This this is our birthright. This is like just about being fully human. This is about not being half dead. This is about just fully experiencing our life and our humanity, you know? So yeah, there's all these practical skills like, you know, expressing yourself to make you a better leader or more more attractive to women. That's true. That's definitely something I could teach you. But then it's like, um, it's also just part of being alive and human. 
to, uh, to shake off some of these sort of shackles of disembodiment that have come through various historical factors we don't have time to get into now, but like there's a rehumanizing process. And I'm, I'm really aware of this when I'm in the ex-communist countries because there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of closing down of the body, the old, you know, Russians don't smile kind of thing. Well, there's a reason for that, you know, and to actually be able to be present to ourselves, which opens up an ethical domain as well you know we're essentially psychopaths if we're disembodied there's you know to be present to be able to like in this case form a friendship you know yeah. or to get an idea across passionately like like that's the skills but there's more than that that's core to who and how i want to be yeah i mean man Whew, there's so many things we could go into about ah we did not trust i know we could, we got We've got the culture aspect. We've got like machine civilization and the fact that we're, 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 we're integrating in the world more and more via screens as we are right now. And how that disembodied does, you know, I was writing up the description for my big summer event and, and like the key thing was like, we're disembodied. We're, we're, we're atomized and we're disconnected. And the thing that people crave more than anything is connection. It's connection to their body, connection to the environment, connection to um, to other people, connection to to animals. Like all those things are 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 it's disembodiment and connection almost synonymous. You know, like connection to self, other planet. That's all an embodied phenomenon. Yeah, and uh, so that's that's fundamentally what I think is the the primary benefit of what I'm doing. So it's really um, it's great to be able to talk with somebody who's been thinking so deeply about this. So thank you um, very much. I think we're just about out of time. So I wanted to give you a chance to say if people are interested in, in understanding more deeply about embodiment, if they want to work with you, uh, where can they go and, and how do they find more about you? Tinder. No, not. Uh, so it depends what they want. Swipe if, right. If they're, if they're yogis, if they're yogis, they should look up embodied yoga principles. Or if they're movement people that want to learn a kind of archetypal uh, psychological language, that's one system that's all over YouTube and the internet. Uh, teachers all over the world. Uh, if they, they should, if they're a coach or they're a body person who wants to work with business, the sort of working with normal people, they should look up embodied yoga principles. And, um, you know, if they're millennial scum that have Instagram, they should uh, follow me, uh, Wark Mosh, my, uh, my Instagram. Uh, there's loads of free resources that I've put out there. There's like over a thousand YouTube videos. Oh, and my podcast, the Embodiment Podcast, if you don't mind me plugging that. No, of course not. That's just me interviewing kind of very interesting embodiment people from around the world. Uh, you were on there. That was a good one. We've got movement people on there. But if you want to kind of broaden the horizons of the kinds of people, I was just listening back to one with a Tai Chi guy that I just got launched last night. And I was, I, you know, I'm learning loads from it. You know, it's the conversations I want to have. Um, and I suspect, and I, I invite me, maybe me and you could do a uh, workshop together one day. I feel like that could be super juicy and I'd learn a lot. And I think your guys would too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make that happen. Uh, 2019. <laughs> So we'll talk about that off the podcast. Um, Mark, once again, thank you very much. It was a, a real pleasure and I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. So we'll have to do it again. Such a joy. I need to go right now. So that was really good stuff though. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.